First part of chapter 8 of the second volume of The Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Daniel Fraser. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Chapter 8 Ideal Society, Part 1. The Gregarious Instinct, All Social Instincts in Suspense. To many beings, to almost all that people the earth and sky, each soul is not attached by any practical interest. Some are too distant to be perceived. The proximity of others passes unnoticed. It is far from requisite, in pursuing safety, that every strange animal be regarded as either a friend or an enemy. Wanton hostilities would waste ammunition, and idle attachments would waste time. Yet it often happens that some of these beings, having something in common with creatures we are wont to notice, since we stand to them in sexual, parental or hostile relations, cannot well go unobserved. Their presence fills us with a vague general emotion, the arrested possibility at once of sexual, of parental and of hostile actions. This emotion is gregarious or gives rise to conscience or sympathy with the public voice. It is seen how a moral world can grow out of these primary intuitions. Knowing, for instance, the expression of anger, a man may come to find anger directed against himself, together with physical fear in the presence of attack. He will feel the contagion of his enemy's passion, especially if his enemy be the whole group whose reactions he is wont to share, and something in him will strive to be angry together with the rest of the world. He will perfectly understand that indignation against himself, which in fact he instinctively shares. This self-condemning emotion will be his sense of shame and his conscience. Words soon come to give definition to such a feeling, which without expression in language would have but little stability. For when a man is attracted to an act, even if it be condemned by others, he views it as delightful and eligible in itself. But when he is forced, by the conventional use of words, to attach to that act, an opprobrious epithet, an epithet which he himself has always applied with scorn, he finds himself unable to suppress the emotion connoted by the word. He cannot defend his rebellious intuition against the tyranny of language. He is inwardly confused and divided against himself, and out of his own mouth convicted of wickedness. A proof of the notable influence that language has on these emotions may be found in their transformations. The connivance of a very few persons is sufficient to establish among them a new application of eulogistic terms. It will suffice to suppress all qualms in the pursuance of their common impulse, and to consecrate a new ideal of character. It is accordingly no paradox that there should be honour among thieves, kindness among harlots, and probity among fanatics. They have not lost their conscience, they have merely introduced a flattering heresy into the conventional code, to make room for the particular passion indulged in their little world. Guises of Public Opinion Sympathy with the general mind may also take other forms. Public opinion, in a vivacious and clear-headed community, may be felt to the casual and irresponsible thing which in truth it is. Homer, for instance, has no more solemn vehicle for it than the indefinite 
and unaccountable, in Greek, tis. So, he tells us, somebody or anybody said. In the Greek tragedians, this unauthoritative entity was replaced by the chorus, an assemblage of conventional persons, incapable of any original perception, but possessing a fund of traditional law, a just, if somewhat encumbered, conscience, and the gift of song. This chorus was therefore much like the Christian church, and like that celestial choir of which the church wishes to be the earthly echo. Like the church, the tragic chorus had authority, because it represented a wide, if ill-digested, experience, and it had solemnity, because it spoke in archaic tropes, emotional and obscure symbols of prehistoric conflicts. These sacramental forms retained their power to move in spite of their little pertinence to living issues, partly on account of the mystery which enshrouded their forgotten passion, and partly on account of the fantastic interpretations which that pregnant obscurity allowed. Oracles and Revelations Far more powerful, however, are those embodiments of the general conscience which religion furnishes in its first and spontaneous phase, as when the Hebrew prophets dared to cry, So saith the Lord. Such faith in one's own inspiration is a more pliable oracle than tradition or a tragic chorus, and more responsive to the needs and changes of the hour. Occidental philosophers, in their less simple and less eloquent manner, have often repeated that arrogant Hebraic cry. They have told us in their systems what God thinks about the world. Such pretensions would be surprising did we not remind ourselves of the obvious truth that what men attribute to God is nothing but the ideal they value and grope for in themselves, and that the commandments, mythically said to come from the Most High, flow in fact from common reason and local experience. If history did not enable us to trace this derivation, the ever-present practical standard for faith would sufficiently indicate it. For no one would accept as divine a revelation which he felt to be immoral or found to be pernicious. And yet such a deviation into the maleficent is always possible when a code is uprooted from its rational soil and transplanted into a realm of imagination, where it is subject to all sorts of arbitrary distortions. If the sexual instinct should attach us, as in its extensions and dislocations it sometimes does, to beings incapable of satisfying it, or of uniting with us in propagating the race, we should, of course, study to correct that aberration, so that our joys and desires might march in step with the possible progress of the world. In the same way, if the gregarious instinct should bring us into the imagined presence of companions that really did not exist, or on whose attitude and cooperation our successes in no way depended, we should try to lead back our sense of fellowship to its natural foundations and possible sanctions. Society exists so far as does analogous existence and community of ends. We may, in refining the social instinct, find some fellowship in the clouds and in the stars, for these, though remote, are companions of our career. By poetic analogy, we may include in the social world whatever helps or thwarts our development, and is auxiliary to the energies of the soul, even if that object be inanimate. Whatever spirit, in the past or future, or in the remotest regions of the sky, 
shares our love and pursuit, say, of mathematics or of music, or of any ideal object, becomes, if we can somehow divine his existence, a partner in our joys and sorrows, and a welcome friend. The ideal, a measure for all existences, and no existence itself. Those ideal objects, however, for whose sake all revolutions in space and time may be followed with interest, are not themselves members of our society. The ideal to which all forces should minister is itself no force or factor in its own realisation. Such a possible disposition of things is a mere idea, eternal and inert, a form life might possibly take on, and the one our endeavours, if they were consistent, would wish to impose on it. This ideal itself, however, has often been expressed in some mythical figure or utopia. So to express it is simply to indulge an innocent instinct for prophecy and metaphor. But unfortunately, the very innocence of fancy may engage it all the more hopelessly in a tangle of bad dreams. If we once identify our utopia, or other ideal, with the real forces that surround us, or with any one of them, we have fallen into an illusion from which we shall emerge only after bitter disappointments, and even when we have come out again into the open, we shall long carry with us the desolating sense of wasted opportunities and vitiated characters. For to have taken our purposes for our helpers is to have defeated the first and ignored the second. It is to have neglected rational labour and at the same time debauched social sense. The religious extension of society should therefore be carefully watched. For while sometimes, as with the Hebrew prophets, religion gives dramatic expression to actual social forces and helps to intensify moral feeling, it often, as in mystics of all creeds and ages, deadens the consciousness of real ties by feigning ties which are purely imaginary. This self-deception is the more frequent because there float before men who live in the spirit ideals which they look to with the respect naturally rendered to whatever is true, beautiful or good. And the symbolic rendering of these ideals, which is the rational function of religion, may be confused with its superstitious or utilitarian part, with exploiting occult forces to aid us in the work of life. Occult forces may indeed exist, and they may even be so disposed that the ideal is served by their agency. But the most notable embodiment of a principle is not itself a principle, being only an instance, and the most exact fulfilment of a law is not a law, being simply an event. To discover a law may meantime be the most interesting of events, and the image or formula that expresses a principle may be the most welcome of intellectual presences. These symbols, weighted with their wide significance, may hold the mind and attract its energies into their vortex, and human genius is certainly not at its worst when employed in framing a good myth or a good argument. The lover of representation, be he thinker or dramatist, moves by preference in an ideal society. His communion with the world is half a soliloquy, for the personages in his dialogue are private symbols, and being symbols they stand for what is not themselves. The language he imputes to them is his own, though it is their ways that prompt him to impute that language to them. Plastic images of his own making and shifting are his sole means of envisaging eternal principles and ultimate substances, things ideal and potential, 
which can never become phenomenal in their own persons. End of chapter 8, part 1